hopeful UFCW 3000. We are the union. The union is us. Welcome to our local USCW 3000 podcast. In today's episode, you will hear several clips from fellow members speaking up at their local city council meetings in July and October 2022. Although these clips are from last year, all of the issues are still relevant and happening every day at our hospitals. Today, we are recording at our Seattle office, and I'm sitting here with Kelly Johnson and Trevor Gendum and our union rep, Anthony. <laughs> My name's uh, Trevor Gendum. I'm an RN at Providence in Everett. I've been there for about five years. I've been uh, doing union stuff for the past two years. I've been pretty active communicating with city councils, county councils, advocating for, uh, for fellow nurses on my floor and all that. Hi, my name is Kelly Johnson. I've been an ER nurse for a very long time, but more specifically at Providence Everett for a little over three years. Trevor and I's story and our involvement with the union is pretty much the same. Mine started with staffing issues and um, is still solely around staffing issues. So. so with the staffing, can you tell me and our listeners more about how you and your fellow nurses really helped lead the charge for our new safe staffing law that passed recently? I think it became pretty apparent when there were some staffing changes that started occurring in 2021 that there wasn't a lot in place for nurses to speak up and make sure that there was accountability for the hospital leaders who were making the decisions around staffing. And we actually started getting involved on the legislation side in the state of Washington back in 2021. Still when staffing was an issue, but not quite what it is right now. And we learned a lot of lessons through the testimonies and hearings that were held and essentially the loss of the ratio bill in 2021. And that kind of led our conversations going into 2022 and knowing who was on the other side of that conversation, which was primarily the Washington State Hospital Association and other leaders in the hospital community. And their push to make sure that the narrative was that we didn't have enough nurses in the first place to even consider having staffing that was safe for patients. And I think the primary goal for nurses was to tell legislators that yes, there are enough nurses to have ratios that are safe for patients. And there was a point in time where we were able to meet those goals in Washington state. 
And so it, it was possible, it is possible, but the correct legislation needs to be in place to set a standard and hold hospitals accountable for meeting that standard. And trying to figure out the concerns that legislators had in passing a bill that would set those standards and any information they had that was misinformation or misleading information told to them by hospital leaders across the state and giving them the information to maybe think twice about what they were being told and maybe think twice about how they were going to vote on the bill. Listening to a lot of the testimonies, it was partially just so frustrating because we would hear the people opposed to us say that, well, our schools just need to push out more nurses. There's just not enough licensed nurses. And then to hear our nurses come in and testify multiple times with facts stating straight up how wrong they are and what the actual numbers are of licensed RNs and just the reality that our nurses are no longer going to stand working at these facilities in this kind of environment with the lack of support that we've been receiving and put in these situations anymore. It's just enough is enough. And it was really nice to hear the testimony where people were saying that, but also the numbers with it and the reality check to legislature that actually that's not true. That's not the real information here. And I think my favorite part is when someone brought up numbers and like how much hospitals make and how much their income has gone up. And it's not the excuse that they were given that we don't have the money to pay our nurses more or to hire more staff. It's pretty surprising when you when you hear them say, you know, there just aren't enough, but then you look at the turnover rates, you look at the first year turnover rates, and you look at the burnout rates for caregivers, and you realize there's no accountability on their end. There's nothing we can do different. It's right. this pipeline issue. You just blame it on them. Maybe there, there is a pipeline issue that can be a problem, but you can also have this other huge problem that I don't want to talk about is massive burnout. And you're you, they're destroying people by just whittling them down, grinding them down till they, they just pop, get out of the industry altogether. They're, they're out of healthcare completely. And the, da- the danger of that and the lack of accountability for anybody who's in power to just be able to say, this isn't my problem. It's a, it, you just aren't producing enough. It's really uh, disappointing to hear. It's hard to, to hear it over and over again. It was extremely disheartening because we were constantly told, well, you just need to report it. Well, you just need to report it to the right people. Well, you're just not saying it often enough or you're not being honest about when it's happening. And that wasn't the case at all. We were all constantly reporting it to the Department of Health. And then the Department of Health would come in and investigate. And you initially would take that deep breath going, finally, someone's listening. Finally, someone's going to call them out on it. Someone's going to make a difference. You know, change is going to happen. And then they investigate. And then nothing happens. And it was over and over and over for, in some cases, a year or two years, depending on what facility you're at. So with this new law, the fact that that's going to change, that now they are going to be held accountable, more so by LNI, which we all know, if anyone's going to hold somebody accountable, it is LNI. And I don't know about you guys, but I felt a huge sense of relief when that law passed because we're now finally going to start seeing that change. Change that doesn't seem to be coming fast enough with how fast the situation is unraveling. Right. Um, One is at a different pace than the other. And I think where we're at, the hospital we're at, by the time the changes come, 
a lot of damage will already be done. And yeah, I think, I think this legislative session and this piece of legislation just highlights and talking about DOH coming in and trying to investigate these situations and make a decision on how to correct it really highlights the limited legislation that is out there where they can hold certain people accountable. It's easy to hold a nurse accountable. There's things that we're supposed to be doing. There's documentation we're supposed to be doing. And if we're not doing it, then they always have the option to take our license away. Same thing with the physician. There's always things that doctors are supposed to be doing. There's guidelines, there's standards of care. And if they're not meeting that, then yeah, they can lose their license too. The problem with leadership is that leadership does not have a standard that they have to adhere to. There are management requirements for them. And so if they make a mistake or they make a wrong choice that has a significant negative impact on patients who are receiving care, you can't take their license away. At best, you can hope that the organization itself is really frustrated with the money lost because of that mistake and that person might lose their job. But ultimately, that's not what happens either. And so I think hoping that the DOH is going to come in and address something, really all that they can do is, did you violate this standard of care? Did you violate this part of the law? And then here's how we're going to tell you how to fix it. Even one of the interesting things that happened with Providence is there was an instance where the Department of Health came in and they acknowledged that we didn't have enough staff in order to make the corrections that they were asking us to make. But they were limited in what they could do as far as changing the staffing situation so that we could meet those corrections. And I'll stop rambling there, but... No, you bring up good points, and that actually leads me into the next section that I wanted to bring up with you guys. Because this law, although great, is going to take a long time to come into play and start making those changes, that doesn't mean that we can't bargain for things to happen much sooner in our contracts, which is why you guys have been engaged in a heavy bargaining negotiation with Providence, correct? Oh yeah, it's yeah. been it's been pretty brutal. You know, uh, Kelly came up with the idea to introduce basically a, an accountability pay or a staffing premium pay. That sounds really interesting. So when we're short, there's no way that they can profit off of it. You know, the idea is, is that they're short, so then they pay the nurses for the extra work they're doing instead of shorting us on purpose and then recouping all the money that they want to make from it. And so the design is it kind of goes along with the law. The law has a $5,000 penalty if you don't match the matrix, which is the number of patients to nurses. So you have five patients, one nurse, four patients, one nurse, depending on what floor you are in the hospital. So when we, we were introducing this, and, and uh, Kelly will tell you about what happened in the legislative session, but when we introduced this, that was kind of the idea behind it, but it, we weren't quite able to find an agreement. And they didn't want to hear about ratios. They didn't want to hear about any staffing ratios. They didn't want to hear about that being in the contract. They wanted no part of it. It's like dealing with a kid they were wrong and they've lost and they don't want to admit it. And then they definitely don't want to give us any more ground to stand on. And it's tough, but I'm really glad that you guys are fighting for more ground and that you're pushing for that because you're not going to be the only ones. Everyone else is going to be fighting that same thing. And I think as long as we all continue fighting for the same stuff, we have a better chance of making that language a part of our contracts. 
And with that, that detail, that concept, which sounds amazing to me, when it comes to short staffing, does it matter if you're short staffed because people called out sick or is it only applicable to situations where they just don't have the proper staff scheduled? It would apply to both. The thing to think about sick calls is if you're not an organization that's good to work for and the environment that you have is stressful, both physically and mentally, and then also takes a toll on the employee emotionally, you're going to see more people call out because they're going to need time to recover or just the idea of going into work and experiencing that one one more time can like cause a panic attack. I know I've, I've had a couple mornings where I've been on my way to work and I've had to talk myself down from having a panic attack, concerned about what conditions I was going to be going into. And so I think the article that we're trying to bargain for into the contract that we didn't have before would apply whether you're being intentionally understaffed or there aren't enough nurses to hire yet as they as the executives like to call it, um, or if nurses call out because the burden should be on the employer to account for all of those factors and each one being a result of something else. So yeah, the, the staffing premium, as we've called it, would apply regardless of the situation. I like that. And you, when you look at absenteeism, you know, you'll see sometimes the administrators kind of go pop back and go, well, you guys are calling in sick. Well, when you're an unhealthy organization to work for, the number one symptom you're going to be looking at is absenteeism. Your first year turnover rate's high, you're going to have high absenteeism. If you have a high turnover rate, you're going to have high absenteeism. It means it's an unhealthy place to work. It's a symptom of a bigger problem. And they don't really look at it like that all the time. They don't, they're not really connecting the dots of, well, why are so many people calling in sick? Right. Um, well, when it's a dangerous place to work and it's scary to go to work, that's not going to create the healthiest person. You know, that's that person's probably not going to feel great all the time. Like Kelly was saying, man, I've been scared shitless to go to work. I've been yes. afraid to go to work before. I've, I've gone. I've gone before. I've gone when I'm scared and it's been yeah. OK sometimes. But uh, but I and, and then you look at all the people that that just aren't there anymore. You know, all my friends are gone. You know, we, we, your support is gone. Yeah. Hi, my name is Brittany Kokesh. I've been an ER nurse now for the past eight and a half years throughout the country. I have been a nurse at the province ER for the past year. Like others before me, I am here to discuss the current dangerous staffing crisis we are currently experiencing at Providence. Each day the nurses at Providence walk in, many of us dreading our day due to the unsafe staffing assignments and most, that most are receiving. Increased patient ratios making proper and standard patient care impossible. Overdue medications, inability to provide proper repositioning, repeat timely vitals or assessments on patients is crucial. For us in the ER, we feel a very heavy weight on our shoulders due to rooms being closed on the inpatient side due to lack of staffing. For instance, the other day on the weekend when I worked on Sunday, we were told at 7 p.m. that they would be closing 20 beds upstairs. Those that those patients, not sure where all they went, but they bottlenecked down to our ER. For an approximately 70 bed ER, we are boarding 70 plus patients in our department daily, leaving long wait times, numerous hallway patients, with patients literally lining every available space possible, with some waiting for an inpatient bed up to four days in our ER, sometimes in the hallway. We have collectively gone to Providence Leadership Administration numerous times, vocalizing our concerns, only to fall on what feels like deaf ears, other than to be told they appreciate us. 
Also, blaming nursing burnout. This isn't just burnout. They continue to, to diminish our travel nurses who currently are critical to our proper staffing. Without them in the ER, as Kelly had mentioned, we lost 17 people recently in the last week. When asked about hazard pay, we are told no due to $1.3 billion in debt and financial loss. As Providence continues to buy other hospitals and to rebrand and rename, which also costs money. It is time that we ask the City Council of Everett for help. We are asking you to mandate hazard pay to bring Governor Inslee to bring this to Governor Inslee's attention. And also, we want our community aware of what is actually going on in Providence within our doors. This is not just a staffing crisis. This is affecting the community, the people of our community that we serve, that we care about deeply, and also our own families who possibly could show up in our doors. For instance, if I have time, I have a patient that I had a few weeks ago, actually a month ago, 30 seconds. that because of our wait time in our ER, the patient left. Patient came back later, almost dead. It's, it is absolutely unsafe. And I hope that you guys are able to see this and able to hear our cries for help as we have done as much as we can. I appreciate your time. Thank you. And it's hard and exactly that when you do work in that kind of negative environment, it actually does make you physically ill. It's not even just panic attacks. It's also that PTSD from going into work and dealing with the repercussions of being improperly staffed in the sense of it affected actual lives. And then you relive those feelings every time you go into the parking lot. It is that burnout. And that burnout and those things give you physical symptoms. If you have autoimmune diseases, it exacerbates the side effects from those autoimmune diseases. It doesn't mean we're not genuinely sick and worn down to the bone. We are. It's just that we are to an extent that it is almost impossible to recover from, or at least that's what it feels like from my perspective. And I get that. There have been days where you sit in your car and you just cry because nobody wants to go to work. But then you force yourself to go because you know that your patients are there and your patients need you and your coworkers need you. You know, the few of you that are left because then you have that that question that you pose to yourself, well, if I don't go, who's going to? And that's not right. And that's why we have to force hospitals to change these environments and keep fighting in what ways we can to make things better because who wants to accept this is the forever reality. Not me. Not us. Not the patients. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, my name is Shauna. I am a nurse at Providence. Um, I have been a nurse there for two years and a CNA prior to that for five. Um, everyone's done a really good job of explaining what the hospital has been like lately. Um, I would just like to say that this is not compassion fatigue. This is not burnout. This, what we're experiencing right now goes far beyond that. Uh, we are hemorrhaging. We are bleeding out and there's nobody there to help us. We feel like we're all on our own. Um, recently, we had a bonus in place and that was keeping us above water. Um, we were able to barely make staffing and um, be there to help our fellow nurses and the bonus went away and we have just been sinking since then. Um, older nurses are leaving because uh, the conditions right now, it's it's physically breaking us to carry the patient loads that we're carrying. 
new nurses are leaving because they are not prepared for the avalanche of fear and anxiety that the job is causing them to deal with. And there has been so many stories um, that we are seeing or hearing in our community that patients are dealing with in our hospital, in our beautiful community hospital. And it's just not okay. We need help. We, our community needs help. Um, I've heard of patients calling 911 because there is no nurse there to get to that. That, that is just outrageous. Um, I've seen patients losing weight if they can't physically feed themselves because there are not enough nurses or CNAs to help feed people. Uh, recently, we had a really crazy staffing night. Um, my floor, every nurse had six, pati six patients. That means if any of us wanted to go on a break, a nurse was going to have 12 patients. We didn't even have enough nurses to run a code blue. This, it's just not okay. We, we need help. Our hospital needs help. Healthcare is at that breaking point that we've been hearing about, but we've been hearing it for years about a staffing shortage for nurses. This is not new. This is not caused by COVID. But the old ways of doing things, the old compensation ways for the shortage of nurses that we have is we have to work together to figure it out. This isn't just about Providence. This is happening everywhere, although I have not heard these crazy stories at other hospitals. So... And those other hospitals aren't my community hospital. That's not the community that I live in and work with. And when I am around here and I hear what my neighbors have experienced at my hospital, it's not okay. And we all need to come together to figure out how to fix this. And it can't just be on the staff's back. Um, so Sorry, Shauna, we have much. to wrap this time up. Thank you. I appreciate you all for being here. And what has it been like when you, I know you guys have been going to city council meetings and speaking about the realities of the situation. What is their response then? At first, you know, about a year, a little over a year ago, Kelly was like, hey, let's go to city council. Let's go talk to these people and, and see what they can do to help. And at first, you know, we had a few good people, uh, Mary, Mary Fossey, Paula Ryan, and then Don Schwab, I think popped in there for a minute. And Mary Fossey and Paula Shrine have been super helpful. They responded. They've been active uh, helping the union. Really awesome people. Advocated for people in their community. But from other members of the city council, the mayor, we've got a pretty lukewarm response and even some weird, weird stuff. Because they, we, the first time I think we went, the mayor came out and said that they had already met with the CEO, Darren Reddick. They had already had a private meeting before the, the city council meeting. Uh -huh. And so we're like, what? Like, you should have, if you're going to meet with them, meet with us too. Yeah. Have a private meeting with us. And I don't think that ever really clicked with her that this was, that that was the wrong thing to do. It was inequitable. You're helping this million dollar CEO of a billion dollar company. And you're not really advocating for the little guy who's, who's sitting there advocating for your constituents. Right. Um, it was pretty wild to see the very first one. And then from there, we went to county council, Snohomish County Council, and Megan Dunn was very helpful there. Um, she connected us with everybody. There wasn't 
nobody was in attendance. I think it was just Megan Dunn and maybe one other person uh, from the county, the county council. Yeah. And this was during COVID, so it was yeah. pretty typical for not all of the members to show up. They were still doing like a lot of virtual county council meetings and stuff like that. So that one yeah. got quite a bit of social media attention. We had a few videos that go went like I guess mildly viral. So it was helpful in, in that way. And they've Snohomish County Council has been positive in writing letters of support for the nurses of Providence, That's nice which is pretty rad. That that is really nice to hear. I think the the most exciting thing for me about having gone to city council and county council, and while we went there and gave uh, like public testimony, which is like like anybody can go and do that, but. I think the amazing thing to me was the conversations we were able to have outside of those council meetings. And from a city and county perspective, it was bipartisan. I feel with union-related issues, it is generally Democrats who are pro-union. And with Republicans, they're not so pro-union. But this is an issue where healthcare can be bipartisan and you can have that conversation while also being a union member. And so with for city and county council, like their first letter of support back in 2022 was bipartisan. Every single person had signed the letter of support. I think mm-hmm. we almost got that with the letter of support we received this year. But I appreciated that because sometimes there are certain political parties you don't know what you can talk with them about, or if there's an issue, if they would care about that issue the way another political party would. And so this seemed to be like one that was unifying for both. Thank you. My name is Kelly. I live here in Everett. Um, It has been over three months since I first came to city council to share my concerns of the unsafe staffing at Providence. Three months since we were told it was going to have to get worse before it gets better. Two months since Janine, Darren, and Dr. Cook came to city council. Janine has been replaced and Darren has been replaced. There was a glimmer of hope that with the new CEO starting her career as a nurse, that we would have someone who would advocate for safe staffing, for patient safety, but now we know their new marketing strategy. Janine and Darren may have been too honest regarding the staffing issue and the financial crisis, and yet not honest enough costing them their job. But at least they didn't tell nurses it was their negative attitudes causing other nurses to quit. At least they didn't tell nurses that they can't continue to live in the trauma, they have to move forward, as if the trauma isn't still happening every single day. At least they didn't tell nurses they would have to get creative and solve the staffing crisis themselves. That's our new leader's marketing strategy, and they wonder why nurses continue to quit. Last time I was here, there were thoughts of, well, if we can get the 100 patients who need to go to nursing homes out, that will fix the problem. Well, we are now down to 40, and we can't use that as an excuse anymore. In the ED, we continue to board 30 or more patients with 30 or more in the lobby, waiting every day. We have begun to admit patients in the lobby. There is no hiding from what nurses have known all along. It's a toxic work environment that does not value its nurses or the lives of the patients. There is the thought that we can educate and produce more nurses. That will fix the problem. Let me remind you, in 2021, there were 120,000 nurses licensed and only 59,000 were actually working, which is more than likely decreased in 2022. Nurses with less than three months of experience are taking up to eight patients in the ED, doing the work of up to three nurses while only being paid about $30 an hour. How much do you want to bet in that one to two years they leave the field of nursing and find something better, something that's not toxic, and that doesn't value nurses nor the lives of its patients? Hospitals only care about making money. Providence is not the exception. They just excel at it. 
don't believe me, then ask Google how much money did Providence lose in the stock market in 2022? They almost lost $1 billion. Your next question should be, why is a hospital that doesn't pay taxes using your money to invest in the stock market, not investing in its business to provide health care to the community? Almost $1 billion. That's $1 billion they could have invested in hiring retaining nurses, but they didn't. One would think, how could this possibly hold up to their so-called mission of striving to improve the health and quality of life for their community? Still don't believe me? Ask Google, did Providence pay a marketing firm $45 million to figure out how to get as much money from patients as possible? Did they then turn those patients into collection agencies, even if patients who were not required to pay? Did they correct their ways on their own, or did it take a second lawsuit from the Attorney General of Washington, a second lawsuit for their violation of the charity law? No surprise, but no, they did not correct their ways on their own. Instead, they sent an email to every single employee telling us it's absurd that they would never do something like that. What do you believe? That's $45 million they could have invested in hiring rotating nurses, but they didn't. There were whispers that Providence might go into contract negotiations early, and then those whispers turned into an email of, no, we will not, and that our wages are market competitive. Are they just as competitive with, say, Boeing, Amazon, Microsoft? Or is it CEOs, the only ones allowed to have their wages match other industries? CEOs that take the money, invest it in the stock market, and then lose a billion dollars. House Bill 1868, a law that would have penalized hospitals for violating safe staffing ratios, didn't make it past the state Senate. How much did hospitals spend to lobby against that bill, making it sure it didn't make it to the governor's desk? Money they could have used to invest in hiring retaining nurses, but they didn't. Every nurse in this state should be pissed and you should be speaking up. I invite doctors to start speaking up and supporting nurses because you should be pissed as well. Every elected official should be pissed and asking what can we do to fix this? To anybody who has had to sit in our lobby, be admitted from our lobby, should be pissed. Anybody stuck in a hallway bed should be pissed. Anybody who had to spend days in the ED should be pissed. To the women who have to wait up to five days to give birth, you should be pissed. To the parents who have to go to Seattle Children's because the pediatric wing at Providence is still closed, you should be pissed. 30 seconds count. To the people who lay in their own urine for hours, don't get their daily medications, don't even get to brush their teeth, you should be pissed. And then you should look at your bill with a fine tooth comb and see if they charged you the same exact price as if you had a bed in the hospital. And then maybe you should be calling a lawyer. Then you should reach out to your elected officials and ask them what are they going to do about it. Nurses are mad and we are telling you this is not normal. This should never be normal. It's your hospital, it's your healthcare, it's your community. Don't let them tell you rich men's suits that you aren't worth spending the money on. Thank you. I think one of the things that I learned about as far as like the relationship between city council and county council and the hospital executive team itself is it doesn't appear that the regional executive team is all that impressed with city council or county council. The local executive team might be listening a little bit more and, and care about, you know, their relationship with the elected officials. But as far as the regional executive team, I don't think that they're 
it's probably a letter that they barely even read and moved on to their more important decisions. And it's that regional executive team that is really calling all the shots right now and trying to figure out what is a message that is going to reach them. Because so far, all of the attempts that we have made have not made it to those folks. Yeah. And you guys have been working hard. You've been meeting with the newspaper. Yeah. Uh, is it the Herald? Mm-hmm. Yep, the Everett Herald. And the Everett Herald, I think they take pride in being a local paper and really focusing on issues that impact the people who read the paper. And Providence is such a large hospital and really the go-to hospital for Snohomish County and other like neighboring counties that for them to be able to allow us to have an opportunity it's easy for the hospital to take out an ad in the newspaper and share what information they want to share, however misleading it might be. Right. And most of the time, like the average person doesn't get the opportunity to combat that message. But through the Everett Herald, we're able to talk with them and share with them information that the hospital necessarily wouldn't share with them or to be able to do opinion pieces of our own or do letters to the editor so we can just kind of expand on what's happening a little bit more so that the reader isn't just getting one side of it, which is the hospital side of it. And I think that that's something that usually tends to happen in contract negotiations is hospitals have the money to spend on public messaging. And sometimes they get to start that perception before nurses ever get a chance to. And so as a nurse, you're just always responding to what they said first. Right. And the Everett Herald is great in giving us a a more level playing field. And I appreciate that from them because it's so important that both sides of the story be explained. But also, guys, this is the reality of what you all are going to have to deal with when you need to go to the emergency room, when you need to go have a surgery, when you need to have a procedure done. This affects everybody. Yeah, the reality is it's a community hospital. Exactly. So, so it's like well, the idea that us as nurses are doing all of this to somehow benefit ourselves is a wild, like a wild thought of like, why else would we be doing this unless there was a real problem? Right. You know, we don't stand like we're not we're not CEO Ron Hockman. We're not we're not sitting here making four million dollars to stand to make ten million dollars. Like you're talking about people who are so powerful that they actually stand to gain millions and millions of dollars, summer homes, yachts, jet skis. And we're sitting here just saying, hey, we just want to take a safe number of patients so you're safe. And the idea that that's hard to gain traction is uh, pretty bizarre to me. It's a wild, wild thought that like, what would we stand to gain by saying all this unless it was true? Like, unless it genuinely affects the community, it affects you. When you come in and I'm taking seven patients, I'm going to be stretched to the limit and that's bad for you. And I'm telling on them for, and telling on myself saying, I can't do my job well enough to take care of you. That's what we're saying. Right. You know, and we've been trying to say it for a long time because in reality, the staffing issues are not new. This isn't a recent thing. This has been an existing problem for years. It's just that COVID pushed us to the breaking point mm-hmm. is the reality of it. It exacerbated and, it. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, uh, you, you, you look at that, like 20, probably go back 20 years and we're, how, we're short. We know we're short. You know, the Department of Labor and Statistics 
comes out with a study in 2008 saying, hey, by 2020, 2030, you're going to be short millions and millions of nurses. And, and what did they do? You know, what did these great, smart leaders who deserve tens of millions of dollars do? They gave themselves more money. Yep. And that's money that could have gone into the infrastructure of, if you have a pipeline shortage, do something about it. If you have a pipeline shortage, spend these millions of dollars that you're taking on schools and mm-hmm. fix the pipeline shortage. You have the University of Providence, shoot out some scholarships. If that's the problem you see, fix it. And then when you look back at the receipts, okay, they do have the University of Providence, but they don't offer a ton of scholarships. They, yeah. they only offer it. You go from you can go from your associates to your bachelors. Well, we need associates, RNs, who are in the field working. Do that. You know, expand your game. And they have twenty plus years to do that. What do you know? What do we see? We see bigger bonuses. We see that your top executive gets a 157% increase. We see that your top executives get a 50% increase. We see that you're ripping off people for charity care, that you're spending hundreds of $100 million uh, for the Sounders, for to have your name on the front of a Sounders jersey. Like you've spent your money in the way that's very clear to make more money, and you haven't done it to fix any of the issues you've identified. Right, it's yeah. Wild. Hello, my name is Trevor Gendum. I'm an RN at Providence Regional Medical Center in Everett. Um, I'm from Stanwood, but I, I uh, commute to Everett there. And I'm just here to talk about the, the staffing shortage that we're, we're facing at Providence Regional Medical Center. And, you know, I think that it's important to kind of look at the, the history of, of what's gone on. There's always been a nurse staff shortage. And when you go back a little bit, you go to the 2008 report, Department of Labor and Statistics, they say, hey, you're going to be short 1.2 million nurses by 2030. You're going to hit critical mass, they're calling it, where there just won't be a response of nurses unless we do something. So this is an issue that Providence, being in the medical field, should absolutely know about. Now, this particular issue was exacerbated by a global pandemic, which the 2008 report couldn't predict. But there was predictions that the next pandemic was going to be a global respiratory pandemic. What did Providence do? Close to nothing. There was no stockpile of N95s, no cappers. And what happened? Well, some of us died. I think a little over 3,000 nurses nationally died. It was a hazardous working condition. And on top of that, there was a mass exodus. And we don't really know the results of that just yet because people are probably still leaving the profession as we speak because we're not at the end of the pandemic. Now, all of this leads to what's our current climate. What we're facing at Providence is perhaps the critical mass that was talked about in that study. It's just happening sooner because they they couldn't have predicted that it would happen this quickly. Now, what we're seeing is, is Providence didn't do anything about it in two, from 2008 until now. So where are we? Well, well, we're seeing that there's a, a, we're chronically working short. The ED is absolutely overwhelmed. And Providence's suggestion to fix these problems is a, uh, a six to one patient ratio on some floors. Now, there is no scholarly data that backs up that that is safe for patients. But we see that the nurse has less time, less attention to details, more stress, more shortcuts. This all impacts negatively patient safety, more infections, greater risk of medical errors, all these issues occur. On top of all this, what we see also is that Providence is likely profiting off the staff shortage. You have less nurses, less people to pay, but you haven't really reduced the the patients by much. So what we're asking the city council to do is to do not allow them to dangerous workplace. What we're asking is, is, hey, let's have some sort of hazard pay. Let's have some sort of accountability for this. Uh, please, you know, help the community, step in, help the nurses, 
and uh, protect protect the people here that are, are working to help as many as we can. Thank you guys for your time. Appreciate it. Have a good one. They reward themselves for what they're able to do financially. They don't reward themselves for what they're able to do for the patient. And using that model for the past 10 years, we have now reached a place where to receive healthcare in hospital is at the lowest possible standard it has been in a long time. Yes. And hospitals, I mean, HCA, Providence, what's another like big hospital chain? Multicare. Multicare. If you look up all Kaiser. of these hospitals, they Kaiser, billions of dollars in, in what the financial people like to call liquidity, which is basically like what your cash is, what your stocks are, like what can you sell off in order to say that you have money to spend. They have billions of dollars in some form of money lying around. And yet the service that they're providing, their product that they're selling is the lowest it has ever been as far as the quality of it. And they don't seem to be bothered by that right now. But nurses are. And we're definitely thinking about that in every contract negotiation. And how has the negotiation process been going with Providence, especially lately? Like what kind of update would you give to our listeners? Well, not surprising, it's disappointing because I think it's just another instance where they're aware of the problem and they have the opportunity to handle it differently. And yet they're choosing to use the same methods that they have always used. And it's another instance where as nurses, we have to see their lack of ethics show itself. I mean, because that's really what it's about. Like if they wanted to say it was about wages, they could agree to our staffing language and then literally let us fight over wages. Like right. if, the, if they want to say it's just about money, then they could agree to everything else that is solely focused around the patient. And then they can just hash it out with us over wages. Right. But what they have shown us so far is we're going to be hashing it out over safety for patients. That's the language that they don't want. It just re like point blank. That's the right. language they do not want. Like we will have to strike in order to get that language, which is bizarre because if you're in the business of wanting to give people the best possible health care, then why would you not want language in the contract that would ensure that that happens? And that's the one piece where they barely even budge. It's so frustrating because most hospitals will come out and say, well, of course we want to help people. That's why we're a hospital. Great. Put it in writing. If that's really what you want to do, put it in writing. And if it's not, why are you even in this business? Because you're the one who's running this. Yeah, and it's terrible. The actions don't match the words. They definitely They're don't. Not, not willing to put, quite put it in the contract or our staffing language. And they even propose some cuts. They pretended like they didn't, uh -huh. but really when you looked at it, it was like we went from like six hours of meeting time related to staffing to like three. And they were trying to combine all these meet, and it's like, we need more time, not less. And we need we need more ways to figure out the staffing issues, mm -hmm. not less. But our, our staffing language uh, has been a big fight in this contract. And it's like Kelly said, it's like at some point if what you're doing isn't working, change your tactic. 
And, right. and what we've seen is it's like the same, th- the last contract negotiation, we, we ratify our contract, we lose a third of our workforce within a year. Well, we were finding something in between what we wanted and what they wanted. And guess what? It didn't work. So it's like you have to be able to retain your staff in order to maintain staffing. And they don't have a good strategy to do that. So we came in with a strategy. We're like, hey, we're short on weekends. We're short on nights. We got to figure out something to mm-hmm. uh, adjust for that. Yeah. And theirs is just like, well, we just want to throw some money at you. And it's like, why do you think that that would, if that's what you wanted to do, that's just a market adjustment. You don't need to negotiate that. You could have done that a year ago and probably yep. saved yourself hundreds of nurses who already left. Um, and that's something we've seen other hospitals do. Overlake did it. In January, they did a $5 across the board increase to yeah. a market adjustment for inflation and all this stuff. Brilliant move. And they have, their staffing's much better than ours. And for some reason, our hospital wants us to negotiate for something that's just should be done as a standard. Yes. And why do you, would you think that strategy would work? And now they're between a rock and a hard place. I mean, what if that happens again? You lose another third of your workforce. Can you even maintain the ability to function? It, right. It's a, such a risk that they're taking, but why are they doing it? You know, it's we'll hard, just, to, hard to understand. We'll just be like my last facility and just close down floors, but keep the rest open. Yep. Why should we close when we can keep other departments opening and just run away the rest of the remaining staff? And it's horrible to see happen, but it's the reality of how our hospitals are choosing to run. At some point, you have to accept that that's the strategy. That's what, I mean, if that's what they're doing, it's those are the actions. Strategy. Yeah. That's what they're trying to do. I mean, it's, we're guessing, but, you know, at some point, I think we've come to the conclusion that we aren't bargaining with the people in the room. We're bargaining with the the regional team that's got some button that they hit and go, and they hit the button and says, no, they're not dealing with the public. They're not dealing with the community. They're not dealing with us. They're not listening to us. Right. They're just, they just have their lawyer there and a bunch of people who can't do anything. Right. That's, that's what it feels like. It does. It's so beyond frustrating. And I'm sorry that you guys have been having to deal with all that. I think the other piece that's kind of frustrating about trying to get the staffing language in the contract was when SB 5236, which is the staffing bill made it to the Senate, one of the senators took the time to ask the lobbyists for the Washington State Hospital Association, is staffing something that nurses can negotiate for their in their contract? And the lobbyists said, yes, they just choose not to. They bargain over wages instead. And I remember that. I can't help but think that that false sense of reassurance that that lobbyist gave those senators was like, oh, okay, so they're saying that they can. So is this really a legislative issue? Like, do we need to go this extra mile to get ratio language in our bill? Or can we leave this out out there to decide? Let the employee and the employer hash it out. Do we really need to get into the middle of this? I can't help that 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 part of her testimony didn't have some sort of impact on how how the rest of the bill got changed before it was passed. And the part that I have the most difficulty with is, you know, we had the legislators had the opportunity to go above and beyond. And this is just another situation where the burden is back on the nurses again. Yes. When we've already been carrying a heavy burden for three or four years, 
now that burden is carried on through contract negotiations. Now it's our responsibility to make sure our contract has some accountability in it for the decisions that these hospital executives are making because no one else is holding them accountable. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to fight for that. But then at some point beyond our contracts, other people are going to have to step in and have this fight and figure out how are we going to start holding these executives accountable for the decisions that they're making and for them to stop rewarding themselves financially for making very, very terrible decisions. I there, If you were to sell a product and your customers were to die because your product was not that good, you would have to remove that product off the market. And then you would have to face some sort of like liability lawsuits. Like if you're if you're a manufacturer of a vehicle and a few people die, which there have been instances where cars like engines explode or whatever, and they have to pull they have to pull that stuff off the market. And then there's accountability. And right now, as nurses, what we're seeing is that the product that we're being expected to give, which is healthcare, is so poor that it's putting patients in danger and some people are ultimately losing their life because of it. And this should be a situation where some outside organization should come in and be like, you sh- you're not allowed to provide the service anymore because it is putting people at risk and they're losing their life. And until you can figure out how to improve your product, right. we're not going to let you like have a business anymore. And that's what like I perseverate on way too much. And that's one thing that we're trying to fix in contract negotiations is trying to provide accountability when there is hardly any. Yeah. And it's hard not to focus on that when that's your reality. Every day when you go to work, that's our reality every day when you go to work. It's hard for new nurses because they don't have anything to compare it to. There was no before. Right. Like they know it's scary, but they don't, they can't pinpoint like, well, what I know it shouldn't be this, but what should it be? But someone like me and Trevor or any other nurse who's still a nurse that was a nurse five years ago, we do have things that we can remember. Mm -hmm. We can remember when we were well-staffed. We can remember when it was like to actually have time to answer patients' questions. When we had time to go room to room just because to check on people, do you need anything? You know, like we don't have those opportunities anymore to do that. But we remember that that was a thing before. And we're not hit with wave after wave of COVID anymore. Now we're just dealing with hospitals who are trying to recoup financial losses in the stock market through labor. Yep. And they put it on us. I'm Julie Bynum. I'm a float nurse at Providence Hospital for the last 12 years. And I just wanted to say that in all of my 28 years as a nurse, I've never seen a staffing shortage like I've seen currently. This is absolutely unprecedented. I have a very real concern for my patient's safety on a daily basis and a struggle to even meet their basic needs. I'm frequently placed in a situation where I'm needed by two to three patients at the same time, and there's no available backup resource to assist me or them, for that matter. A good example would be um, just last week when I had to choose who I was going to help. A patient whose blood sugar was critically low or somebody that was elderly that had to go to the bathroom and that was climbing out of bed and um, had frequently fallen before. We have met time and time again 
um, with Providence Senior Management to find solutions to this nursing shortage and to keep our patients, your constituents safe. We're asking for the city council to mandate Providence pay all nurses hazard pay until our, this nursing crisis resolves. I'm also asking the city council to contact Governor Inslee and ask that he end emergency orders providing hospitals protection and preventing the Department of Health from investigating staffing concerns. And finally, we, um, I'm asking for the city council to investigate Providence for their unethical and negligent practice of ignoring staffing concerns. It is suspected that they are purposely understaffing all departments as a solution to their $1.3 billion financial loss. Thank you. One of the things you mentioned earlier that I wanted to go back around to is how the bill changed when it was reworded. And it was unfortunate because in the first bill, respiratory therapists were mentioned as a critical member of key staffing because we work very closely with our nurses and our physicians to save patient lives. Because when your patient is crashing, nurses call RTs, hey, my patient can't breathe. We need to put them on a ventilator. I need help. And then as the bill was changed, we were kind of just left out of it and taken out, which really disheartened us because we're in this fight with you guys. We want to stand up. We're here. We're, you want to strike? We'll strike with you. Like we are in it together with you guys. And now it's passed, which is great, but because we were pretty much written out of it, our only ground we have to stand on is our contract bargaining, which has always been a fight to begin with. And I know that it's not just RTs that feel that way. It's a lot of other healthcare members that were originally mentioned in the bill and taken out. I relate is what I guess I'm trying it's to a, say. It's airway, right? You're teaching nursing school, ABCs, it's airway. It's like the, the number one thing. It's almost like the people who created the bill have no background in, in uh, healthcare. <laughs> exactly. And it was so frustrating to read it because it's like there's so many key components that are great about it, but there's also so many key components that people miss that were so valuable that we needed to keep because healthcare is a team. It's not just one profession. It is all of our professions. Like I need x-ray to take a picture of my patient's chest and tell me if they have a pneumo, do they need a chest tube or do I need to reposition their breathing tube? You know, we all work together. We need pharmacy to help medicate our patients so that we can treat them properly and fix them and turn them around. We need lab. We need everybody. Everyone is important, which is why we go back to bargaining. And it was why it was so frustrating when that legislature member asked that question and their answer was so fucking wrong. We don't just fight for wages. We fight for everything. It's just that hospitals are choosing to not work with us to the detriment of our community and our families. I wish that Senator who, and I, I think this kind of speaks to the power dynamic that exists in healthcare and whether you're RT, a patient care tech or a nurse, it never seems that like those fields are like the go-to to ask questions. There were plenty of nurses who testified that day that any of those senators could have asked questions about the process of negotiation or why why this bill mattered so much. But not a single nurse was questioned right. by the legislators. But the legislators definitely took time to question other so-called leaders who aren't even at the bedside, do not understand the impact that it has on the community. And I think that kind of speaks to the power dynamic is that as 
people who work the bedside are getting more active and are able to see the ways where we can impact positive change is making sure that we have a seat at that table at the legislative level and that it's not just hospital lobbyists and physicians and fire commissioners and people who are in leadership positions that are being asked questions, that it's the people who are doing the work that are also taken into consideration and that their input is sought um, when we're passing laws. I agree. It was really frustrating because they had more than ample opportunity to ask us, the ones who are at bedside, what do you guys negotiate in bargaining? What do you guys fight for? Why are you fighting for it? As if we didn't answer those questions in our testimony already, if they would just listen. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of people who signed up, petitioned, spoke. It was like, I think over 6,000 that were were, uh, really pushing for having the safe staffing ratios in the bill and all that. And there was probably like maybe a a few hundred that were like, no. Mm -hmm. And it was the powered, like Kelly says, that power dynamic. But that 6,000, you know, it was representative of so many more, but it was so few that were in the no. And they had so much more power. Well, they also, I felt like, had so many. It's like they gave the no's the floor at the beginning to have the most time. And I don't know about you, but I had to write three versions of my speech, depending on time. I had my five-minute speech, my two-minute speech, my one-minute speech, and I even had a 30-second speech. So more than what I just said, 30-second speech, because what they would do is they would give certain people the floor. And then if they went over their time, that's okay. They can keep going. because we'll just take it away from those who are fighting for, for the yes for this law to pass. And that was just so frustrating. And like you said, there was a very few number of no's, but they certainly got enough floor time. Yeah. Yeah. And the most questions. Yes. <laughs> and the most questions. Like you're asking the wrong people questions. <laughs> yeah. But it, you know, you can tell that that hospital lobbyist has built relationships over the year and over the years. And I, I think that that's something that people who are in healthcare also have to learn is that this isn't something that you speak on one time. Like, yes. And I guess that's like one thing you can think about the staffing bill, SB 5236, is that while we were not able to hit every nail on the head and that there are still some very huge pieces that are missing from that language, we at least got one part of the conversation over. It's just going to be really important that we continue to have these conversations and that we know what the other side is saying and we know how to counter what it is that they're saying in a meaningful and intelligent manner. Right. If anything else, this will give us more time to come back with more facts that prove that they are wrong. And as much as a lot of healthcare workers may not want to get involved in politics, it's a necessary part of making a difference is you have to get involved and you have to step up. And whether that's in a small way of like buttoning up or stickering up or signing a petition that your union is passing around or just being willing to sign uh, in support of the law or being able to speak. I mean, that that's all really important. And it's like we just need the support of each other. And we got this bill passed, which is great. That's a start. Doesn't mean we can't pass an additional bill to make things better and start amending some of the things that we lost ground on before. I treated this new bill like a bargaining contract. It's a start, but we can build from that. Progress, not perfection. Exactly. And I think with us being in contract negotiations, like knowing that we're not going to get 
everything that we had initially set our eyes on to get for this contract, but knowing what we won't settle for less than right in the contract. Like there are just certain things that we're not going to give up on and until we have no other option, right? Like yeah. we'll exhaust everything for certain aspects of the contract language that we're wanting. I feel like that's similar in legislation too. It's just like knowing what you absolutely will not give up on, but things that you might have to and revisit later. What is something you guys would like members to know or that is important, whether it's a way that they can help contribute or help you guys with your negotiations or a way to support you or support your fellow coworkers? If you work at Providence and Everett, sign your strike pledge. <laughs> um, you know, this is this is the thing. It's, we got to be a blowfish here. We have to at least look like we can strike. Um, if we don't sign, then you're just agreeing to a, a lesser contract. You're agreeing to poor staffing language. You're agreeing to that. Um, we need you. We need you to sign the contract. Um, if you're uh, not Providence and Everett, but you're just a member union, you want to come to any of our events, it'd be awesome. I think just having more people there in the yellow UFCW speaks to the community, how much support we have and all that. I know from fellow members from St. Michael's that they are happy to support you guys if and when you go on strike. I know from being on the healthcare advisory board that many of us immediately spoke up and said, where can we sign? How can we help? Give us the date. We will be there. We'll bring coworkers. We'll bring friends. We will bring family. I know we absolutely support you guys. How has it been trying to collect strike signatures? Is there a certain amount of strike signatures that you have to collect? It's just mostly just a real genuine curiosity question. Our goal, Anthony's been telling us, our goal is right now about 70, 75%. And that would put us at a little over a thousand signatures. We have about uh, 1,300 members. 13 is like 1,336, something like that, but at the at Prov. So we need a little over a thousand. It's been, uh, it's, it's hard to get people, everybody to sign. There's a group that's, that's just pumped. They're ready. And then there's a group that's not. And for whatever their reason is. And so now we're at the point of figuring out what is the, do they not understand what the strike pledge is? Some, mm-hmm. For a lot of some people, it's a money thing, family. You know, I just can't strike. doesn't right. mean you can't sign the strike pledge. It just means, you know, for whatever reason, you can't sign. And it's stuff like that. So there's all these, there's all these different aspects of it that make it more complicated for people. And then part of it's been just getting organized, like just being able to reach people. Um, that's something we're fighting for in our contract is just to be able to get, get like phone numbers and emails and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're having a hard time reaching certain people. And, but at this point, you know, we, I've said this a bunch of times, it's like, is this group living under a rock? Like if you haven't heard about this or you don't see what's happening at the, your hospital, like this, where, where is this group at? Like, where do they exist at to kind of ignore what's happening to your fellow nurse? I don't know. What are some of the concerns that you guys have heard from people when you approach them to sign a strike pledge that we could share on here to help ease some of the worries of someone who's listening? Some of the people who want to strike but are hesitant are they want to know, can I lose my job? Um, especially new employees and new grads and letting them know like this is a a union protected activity. So in theory, no, you should not be losing your job. And if for some reason you did, then the union would be able to fight for you on your behalf because this is a union protected activity. And I think the other concern is 
what does it look like to go on strike? You know, mm-hmm. like what happens? Um, I think for our hospital, they haven't gone on strike in like two decades. So no one there has a living memory of what going on strike is like. And so people just want to know, what does that look like? The last time our union went on strike at a hospital was in 1999, and it was for one day. We have been close to going on strike with including uh, Providence St. Pete's before recently. Uh, I think that was two years ago. I could be wrong. But there are several instances where we've had to sign a strike pledge and present the employer with that information. And that was kind of the reality check that the employer needed to be like, you know what? Scratch this. Let's sit down at the table, restart this bargaining session and meet in the middle. And unfortunately, it got down to the midnight hour several times. But the last time we've had to actually go on strike at a hospital was in 1999. It's a long time. It's a long time. And we hope that we don't have to again, but we're definitely willing if that's what it takes. For those who have concerns and questions, if you are not comfortable talking to your steward about that, or if you feel like your steward isn't able to answer that question in the way that makes sense to you, call your union rep, contact your union rep, whether it's email, text messages, phone calls, whatever works best for you. Go to ufcw3000.org and get in contact with your rep and ask those questions, address those concerns, and then sign that strike pledge because we need your support. So I've heard people say that they, they don't want to, they don't have any more PTO, don't have any more EIB. Yeah. They send an illness benefit, they don't, you know, and, uh, and it's like, well, you don't, you don't use that for this. Exactly. And then part of it's a financial thing, you know, I can't afford. And then there's the ethical, but someone will say, well, I can't abandon my patient. And then our response usually is like, it's already happening. We're already. You're going seven to one, eight to one on your ratio. You're not providing the care that's needed. You're taking 15 borders down in the ED. You're going to miss things. You are missing things. And if you don't believe you're missing things, you're delusional because you are missing things. Yep. When you were forced to triage your care at the extent of a daily basis throughout your entire shift, it is the same thing as not being there. Mm -hmm. It has the same impact. And I think for those who are having conversations with people who may not want to go on strike, the only way to combat that is not to shame the person or to make them feel bad for for thinking that in the first place. All you can do is continue to have conversations of what you're fighting for in the contract. And I I think the hardest part for me is when talking to people Um, And I will have as many one-on-one conversations as possible because that's where the questions happen. It's safer to ask someone on a one-on-one conversation than it is on a union page where all eyes are watching to ask questions. So being available to answer those questions on a one-on-one basis, but when having those conversations, every person knows exactly what the hospital's proposal is. But not that many people know what the union's proposal is no matter what format we have shared it in. Um, I've gone as far as to print the proposal and provide it to nurses. And while it's boring to read 20 pages of a piece of paper, Mm -hmm. if you want to know what we're fighting for, like this is it. So knowing what you're fighting for and then having conversations about what you're fighting for is the best way to get people on board 
to want to strike if they're on the fence. And we're in a period in time where every day is really important for those conversations. Any day that you're not having that conversation is a missed opportunity. We have our contract is up October 31st, October 30th. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we have two months, you know, to talk this through and figure out what's important to us and what we think is going to benefit the people that we're caring for. Because the thing I like to think about is patients don't get to have a union to represent them. Patients don't have their own contract that they can negotiate for. And this is the closest thing that they have outside of government regulations, you know, of making sure that they're going to get what they deserve. And, you know, that's just another burden added on to the nurse, but who better to do it than the people who are actually providing the care. And so this contract just isn't for us. It is also for the patient for the next three years. Yeah. It ensures that the patient is actually going to get the quality care that they're supposed to get, that we all assume you were going to get when you go to a hospital. It yeah. just guarantees it. Puts it in writing. Hi, my name is Michelle. I live in Linwood, but I work in Everett at Providence as well. I've been a nurse at Providence for almost four years now. I currently work in the ER. Staffing crisis is detrimental to our community and our patients. We are asking the council to take action and help mandate the hazard pay until the staffing has improved. I can think of countless stories regarding the dangers of short staffing, but this particular story comes to mind first. One night I was told to take an inpatient assignment in a pod of quarters, patients that are waiting for a bed upstairs. Sometimes it can be hours to days. There were three other nurses in this particular pod, all of which were running around trying to take care of their own patients. However, we were not given tech or a CNA in this pod. It's nearly impossible to do a total bed change or even turn patients when they're a two-person mattress by yourself, especially when every nurse in the pod is busy or has more patients than they should be taking on. Call lights are going unanswered as there are no nurses to be seen at the nurse's station. On top of being short nurses, we are also short on transporters. I received a call stating that I could return to my original role if I could get my patients upstairs. I was now expected to transport patients upstairs my own. I asked another nurse to watch my patient while I left the transport. And when I got back, I worked on calling the next floor and asked if they were ready to receive my second patient. When they said yes, I approached my patient's door and at the same time, the patient was also walking through the door. I was getting ready to open this door, but then this patient suddenly suffered from a seizure. Because I happened to be there right away, I was able to get seizure medications and a doctor there, but I can't help but think what would have happened if I was gone and how long would it have taken for a nurse to know it because we were so busy and short-staffed. This is a safety issue for our community, and this is just one of many examples. Thank you for your time. I think one more you asked about um, what nurses are afraid of. We're actually hearing more about nurses that are new residents that are uh, potentially being told by management that, well, if you go out on strike, you're not going to be able to complete your residency. You have to do it online or this is going to, there's that intimidation. That yeah. this is, and um, it's just not true. Right. Um, yeah. You can get COVID, you can get the flu. And your 12-week residency is now 13 weeks because they give you that extra week. This would be no different. They're just going to extend your residency and you're still going to get your training and you're going to get signed off. But that's what we're hearing right now from some of those folks that have not yet signed is, is that. I'm a, mm-hmm. I'm a new nurse. 
I was told this. And so uh, it's, it's always great if they just reach out to anyone in the bargaining team, uh, reach out to their union rep, call our office, because we can tell you if it's accurate or not. Yeah. Um, and some of these things are potential ULPs or unfair labor practices, this, mm-hmm. this behavior. So definitely want to reach out to your union and see, you know, what's more accurate. So. Well, thank you, everyone, for taking time out of your day to come meet with me. Thank you, especially for driving out here and talking about some of the difficult topics that we discussed, because it's not always easy to talk about and it can be rough, but I appreciate everything that you guys have been doing and how hard you've been fighting. And when you are ready, I'm here to support you. So just reach out and I'll be there. I'll bring friends. Our friends will bring friends. It'll be a CA yellow. (laughs) If you have any questions or you want to know more about our union, go to our website at ufcw3000.org. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and thank you for listening. Have a fabulous day.